Hey everyone, welcome to 2019. I'm so glad to still be your pastor, just till we find somebody better. This will be any day now. It's only been eight years. Okay, um, most of the last few years we have been doing a series in the first four weeks of the year called we call a spirituality series and we feel like it's important to do that because there are so many misunderstandings in modern culture about what that even means and how that even functions and in certain ways if we just wait till you pick it up from the bible over time it can be a really long time before certain misconceptions get cleared up okay and so sometimes we just want to dive right into one of these major areas and try to sort it out in ways that, w- that people will find helpful. And so this year, the first four weeks, we're going to talk about love, specifically the love of God. And t- how, what does that mean? How does that function? How do we feel about it? What is, what is love? How, what do we do with a God who is ferociously and jealously loving? How does God love us versus how do we want him to love us and how do we sort that out? Um, and so in the first half of this sermon, I'm not going to quote a lot of scriptures. And it's because one of the misconceptions I want to get at to try to help us with is what I would call pre-scriptural, meaning that if you have this misconception, you can go to the Bible and read it and read about Jesus, and this misconception will keep you from seeing what's there. Unless the Holy Spirit does something really remarkable. And, but if you clear—if if you can clear this up, when you go to the scriptures or when you go to the, the message of Jesus, you'll see so much more, okay? That's my goal. Now— Um, what I want to talk about this morning is how we feel—I'm known for preaching about feelings a lot—how we feel about the idea that God loves us. So for about the last 80 years, especially within the evangelical Christian world or the Bible-believing Christian world, there has been a strong emphasis on the idea that the most important thing to tell people about God, whether in evangelism to lead people to Jesus or in ministry to help people understand Jesus, is to tell them and make sure that they know that God loves them. This was very prominent in the evangelistic crusades of Billy Graham from the 1940s onward. It came out in a lot of the preaching of the larger and major churches. By the the late 50s, early 60s, when the four spiritual laws came out of the campus crusade movement, the first of the four spiritual laws, you can say with me if you want to, is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Crew has distributed 2.5 million of those little pamphlets, right? And some people have one that they've read to five or six people. Um— if you've been to a sports game or watched it on TV, you've seen the placards, John 3.16, which is the second most famous Bible verse in America. Of course, the first being Matthew 7.1, don't judge. But the second one is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son— you can, you can say the whole thing if you want— that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. A lot of Christians will, will summarize the gospel as, God loved you so much that he sent his Son to die for your sins. I know whole churches. I have a pastor friend in town. He would, he would say his whole ministry is to try to help people believe and know that God loves them. Okay? Now, I'm going to spend most of the rest of this sermon attacking that idea. But, but here, I want to tell you something before I do that. It's not because any of that isn't true. All of that is true. All of it's true. God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you in a way that you've never yet fully conceived of in a meaningful way. He loves you incredibly deeply, okay? Two summers ago, um, 
I was the speaker at a kids camp. My, I went back to the camp where I became a Christian, and my two oldest girls were in the 13, 14-year-old group, and I was the camp pastor. And as 20-year-olds who write devotionals for teenagers do, I got the, the devotion for the week, the devotional for the week that I was supposed to follow as the preacher, and it was, on day one, it was like, God loves you. Day two, God loves you. Day three, God loves you. And of course, the travesty of that, it's not that it isn't true. The travesty of that is, it's Christian kids who come to these camps. Okay? These are all kids from Christian homes. I mean, like, you, you gotta be sent to a Christian camp, and your parents have to pay, like, $387 for you to go for a week. Okay? Like, either you are a real annoying kid who needs to get off his, off sugar and stop playing video games, or your family's Christian and they're sending you to this place, right? So I get up there the first night, and I have to follow this. Like, I've gotta talk about what they've said, otherwise the talks and the devotionals don't go together. I said, listen, the devotional you read tonight and the devotional you're gonna read tomorrow morning is gonna talk about how God loves you. And listen, I want you to know something. God loves you. And they all looked at me like I had just said that water is damp, you know? <laughs> just kind of like polite attention. A couple of them nodded politely, you know? And, and I said, okay, now here's what I want to tell you. I know your dirty little secret about the statement, God loves you. And they all kind of went like this. And the staff all went, where is he going with this? And I said, here's your dirty little secret. Here's the thing you don't want to tell anybody. Here's, here's our little family secret that everybody's hoping isn't going to get out, but that's torturing you. And you, some of you think you're the only one that this is true of. I said, when I say to you, God loves you, it doesn't do anything for you. You basically feel nothing. Or if you feel something, you have a negative feeling. Like, I know that's supposed to do something for me. It doesn't. I don't know what to do about it. Maybe I'm broken. I've talked to teenagers who've—I've given this talk in four or five places about this bit here, and I've had people say, look, I, I just think maybe, you know, people have different kind of like temperaments or personalities. I think some people are wired for religion and some people aren't. Maybe my parents are wired for religion, and maybe I'm not. I'm like, okay, first of all, it's about 90% that you have a similar temperament to one of your parents, okay? But like, I have the human temperament like least given to religious belief. I'm basically a functional agnostic Christian, okay? Like, I— and yet, like, I am a believer. Like, I believe in Jesus really deeply. Like, it's not, temp it's not your temperament, but people think that. They think if somebody says, God loves you, and you don't feel something, they're like, there must be something wrong with either the statement, God loves you, or you. Right? And they, and they looked at me like I had just, like, outed the abusive father in the family or something. They were like, oh my gosh, you just said it. And then the, the staff were like, what did you just do? Right? They were upset with me the whole week. I couldn't persuade them that I was doing them a favor, right? And the reason I say that is I think that that's true. As I have—I've been in ministry since um, I graduated from high school in 1995, and on some level, all through college and up until now. So 1995 to the present, at least, at least in the new millennium, maybe even further back, I have found that the statement to other people as the lead main thing, the focus of what you're saying, God loves you, is a less and less functional useful way to talk to people about God. It's not because it isn't true. It just doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't, it doesn't evoke deep emotion or devotion. It doesn't water their affections. It doesn't trigger deep imagination. It doesn't do the sort of things that make people feel. And meanwhile, all these people know that there are things in the world that do do things for them. 
Men and women, romance, sports teams, food, drink, seasons, shopping, eggnog. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that, like, when it happens, it does something for you. You see a good friend, you feel good. There's some people, they say, hey, and you, like, feel better. And it's weird that, like, all that stuff makes you feel, and that doesn't. What gives, man? And this is not just true for non-Christians. Like, there's a lot of non-Christians where if you say to them, I say, listen, what you need to know about God is that God loves you, okay? If you say God loves you to a non-Christian, like, I know some of you might, it's going to hurt your feelings, you're going to be upset at me, but listen, if you say God loves you to a non-Christian, that's your main thing, and you don't explain anything else, it's, it, the effect on them is probably that they're going to feel uncomfortable. Because the statement God loves you, or even worse, in quotation marks, Jesus loves you, do you realize how many assumptions are built into that sentence? that you're putting on them and asking them to have an emotional reaction about? There is a God. That God is like the Christian God. That God is both generally and particularly good. There's a lot of people out there that think that if the Christian God exists, he's evil. You don't want that God to love you. You don't want that God meddling in your life, right? You've got to believe that he would actually love you because if I say God loves you, I don't know the real you. I don't know all the deepest, darkest secrets. I might say God loves you, but maybe there's a caveat if you're a particular kind of evil, and maybe you are that particular kind of evil. Like, there's a bunch of assumptions built into that, and I'm, if I say God loves you, and I want you to emote, to respond to that, I'm asking you to buy into every one of those assumptions and then feel the feeling I think you should have. Right? It's true for nominal Christians. It's really true for kids that come from Christian families. Right? Because there's a lot of young people, people in their teens, younger children, and your, your family's believers. You come to a church where we talk excitedly about Jesus, and we're like, Jesus loves you! And you're like, yeah, I guess, right? Like, and you see, here's the problem. The problem is with us adults. The reason why Greg can stand up here and speak passionately about his love for Jesus, pray about God's love for us. It's not because somebody told him God loved him, and like he heard that proposition, and like for 40 years it sustained him. I know Greg. Greg has had experiences of walking with Jesus and knowing him more deeply and meditating on and memorizing large portions of Scripture and growing deeply in his faith and going through heartache and binding himself to God in the worst moments and like— he has walked with God for 40 years, and so he feels stuff you don't feel, most of us. Most of us don't feel. And so when he says, God loves you, and you're like a teenager or something, and you're just kind of like, I know you want me to feel something, but I don't feel something. Here's why. There's nothing wrong with you. That's just not how emotion is transferred. Emotion isn't transferred. Like if, like if your parents tell you, so yeah, we got married. You're going to be like, oh. The dignity of the heritage of my parents' romance. Right? Like at some point, if your kids don't hate your marriage, they want to hear the story of how you met, the story of how you fell in love, the story about how they were born in love, the story about how you stayed together in the worst times so that they can feel something about your relationship and they can feel inspired about their future romance. Propositions don't convey emotions unless you already have experiences with them. Right? I have to keep moving. Okay, the two things I'm not going to talk about in this talk about why we have trouble feeling is that something's changed with God. Nothing's changed with God. The second is like that secularity or the modern world has changed the way we feel and talk about God. That is completely true. There are a lot of great talks out there about how all that functions. I, 
It's the first two chapters of the book Substance I wrote last year. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on that because you don't want me to get heady on subsections and epistemologies and postmodernity. Okay, it's just not going to be helpful. And, the, and the, uh, the second reason is it's not the most helpful reason. The reason why we have trouble feeling has more to do with a much nearer and a much simpler reason. Okay, and it's simply this. That we human beings have forgotten how humans feel stuff. Okay, modernity is great, and our technology is fantastic, and I love having a phone that does things. Um, But our technology, though it's made many physical things and material things much more easy to connect with, it has dislocated us from immaterial things, not just in the world like God— or moral and truths about meaning, but even our own, the immaterial part of our own being. And so for many of our elders, our technological devices make no sense to them. But for a lot of us who are younger people who grew up in the secular world, our feelings make no sense to us. We don't know why we feel stuff. We don't know why we don't feel stuff. We don't know how people come to feel things. We don't even understand any of this stuff. And we don't know how to drive our own machine. We are dislocated from our own being. It's no wonder that we have a complicated relationship with God's love. We have a complicated relationship with our own being. We don't know how we are meant to love God with all our hearts, how we're meant to love God with all our minds. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about um, today, this is the main thing I I want you to see, and I think it's critically important, is that we human beings bond with deep truths through experiences and imagination. And when we bond with truths through experiences and imagination, we start to feel. Because feeling comes from bonding, from connection. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about this morning is how do people feel deeply about anything? And then how do we cultivate deep feeling in God, knowing that God loves us? Okay, so first, how do we feel about anything? So there's two main ways that people— grow to feel deeply about anything. One is through concrete personal experiences. Second is through sympathetic imagination. In the culture, sometimes people refer to it as empathy, but that's not really technically right. It's more that in sympathy, our imagination is evoked, and we draw meaning out of a story we find ourselves in, okay? So for example, the first one, concrete personal experiences. There's some real simple examples of this. Like how your parents' marriage was— enormously dictates how you feel about marriage and family. How you saw your parents work, what kind of jobs they had, whether or not they had good jobs or bad jobs, whether you felt like their job ate them out from the inside because it didn't treat them well, or whether they had a work, work that had great dignity will affect your understanding of work. How they interacted with education will affect deeply the, the story of your early life. Like, there are things that I struggle with feeling about God because of the personality of my dad. It's nothing to do with the Bible. And it doesn't even have much to do with my own temperament. My dad was a certain kind of way. He was very focused on personal morality. He wasn't very focused on academics. And he just cared that I was a good person. And he wasn't emotionally effluent. You know, like how, you know how guys are supposed to be like women now, where we're like super communicative and we feel like, and we're just very like open and like raw. And, like even my own dad, like my dad was like an old school guy. He was like, he worked with the cows. He came in and ate dinner. He ate ice cream and drank some Canadian whiskey, man. Like, we, we didn't play much. Like, it's just that was—and so, like, that's in me, okay? That was my life from when I had diapers till I left the house, till he died. 
And so I can't undo the concrete experiences of my own family life and how that shapes me in the world. The only thing I can do is I can become aware of it and I can try to evaluate it and be like, okay, wait, God's not like that or God is like that. Right? But I have already been shaped by those concrete experiences, and we're all increasingly and often shaped by concrete experiences. But we're also deeply shaped by sympathetic imagination when we personally connect with something that we feel like we're a part of, okay? So the, one, the, the only Disney movie that I cry every time is the movie Mulan. I hate Mulan 2 with a burning eternal passion. <laughs> basically teaches the opposite lesson of— well, I won't get into that. Okay. <clears throat> and um, if you don't know the story, there's this Chinese girl who is not traditionally feminine in the way that she's expected to be to get a, wife, a husband. She, her father is called into military service. He has injuries that make it impossible for him to fight properly, even though he was a great warrior. She disguises herself as a man. She goes through all the training. She becomes integral in winning a battle and saving China. She— uh, She's part of defeating the greatest enemy of her people, and she is bestowed the seal of honor of her nation, okay? And then at the end of the movie, she returns home. She comes to her father, and what she did technically was a great dishonor to her family, okay? For her to take her dad's place as a woman, it was a great dishonor. She comes home, and she kneels before her father. I'm going to cry just like—I'm starting to cry just telling you this, right? And she holds out these two emblems of honor the medal of the honor of her people, and the symbol of the defeat of all their enemies. <laughs> the two greatest symbols of honor she could possibly have from an entire nation. She offers them to her father, and she says, See, Father, I have brought these to us. I, I have, in the end, brought honor to our family. And he takes them respectfully, and he sets them aside. And he said, and he says that sh she is his treasure, that sh being her father is an honor, and he embraces her, right? And I cry every single time. I think I cry worse as time has gone on. And the first time I saw it before I had children, didn't do a thing for me. Didn't do a thing for me. But I, my oldest daughter is a little dislocated from, like, proper femininity. And, like, she struggles with, like, being the girl everybody expects her to be. And, like, but, like, if I had some kind of injury and was conscripted to war, I, she might, like, pull her hair back and try to, like, go to basic training. And and she's weird enough that she could come up with maybe some plan to, like, I don't know, save China. I, but the, the point is, like, as a father, my imagination is drawn to that sympathetically. I have daughters. And I don't have to try. I'm just drawn into it. I'm not Chinese. I've never been attacked by the Huns. Like, if the, if the Chinese emperor—they don't have an emperor right now—bestowed a seal on me or to my daughter, I, I don't know if I would care that much. It'd be nice. We'd, like, hang it in the den, maybe. Like, <laughs> but that story wrecks me, okay? Every Christmas, our family watches It's a Wonderful Life. It's the only movie we watch every Christmas. We do normally watch Elf, but not every year, okay? And so, <clears throat> not only do I cry every time we watch It's a Wonderful Life— I've realized that I cry earlier in the movie every time now. <laughs> okay? And now, it's not like this great cinematic vision. Like, it, 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 people didn't watch it when it first came out. The whole reason we, most of us know about it is because it went into syndication for free. 
And so everybody showed it. And if you watch the movie a number of times, you realize there's like some hokey cuts in it. You're like, why did the director cut that there? But the story is of a man who wants to go out and do the stuff he wants to do. He wants to expand his experiences and see the world for what it is. He knows there's important things going on in the world, and he wants to be part of it. He wants to be part of the war. He wants to be part of building skyscrapers, building bridges, and creating the modern America. And four times in the movie, he hits a dilemma. Will he go and chase that dream, or will he burn it to ashes in order to live out the loyalty of the people he feels responsible to? even though he doesn't even like his feeling of responsibility to them. And it eats him up inside. It eats him up with resentment. And he chooses it when his father dies, and he chooses it at his honeymoon, and he chooses— I mean, like, it's over and over. And then he finally chooses it when his idiot, like, just idiot uncle, just, like, hands his worst enemy $8,000 and, like, bankrupts them, and then he decides to take the blame for it to go to prison. Right? And like he gets to the point where once he comes and then to Clarence, and whoa, 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 right. It all happens. He goes, oh. And all the time, like his resentment doesn't allow him to take his full and true pleasure in his beautiful and wonderful and loving wife who is trying to build something wholesome out of the shell of something. It's not—it's a metaphor that they—she wants to live in that old nothing house that's full of leaks. And she wants to remake it into something beautiful. It's the fundamental archetype of, type of femininity. The going out and fighting the war and changing the world is the fundamental archetype of masculinity. And the man has to choose to inhabit with his wife the fundamental archetype of femininity and become leader of a group of people who can't take care of themselves. It's like the worst possible notion for a man. And he chooses it four times. And it wrecks me every time. Because every man knows about that. Every person knows about that. You could have done the thing you wanted to do. You could have lived for yourself. You could have chased your dream. You could have done your thing. And these incompetent hangers-on, whether they're children, whether it's your community, whether it's your church or your sports team or your whatever, and like you've got to burn your dream to ashes to take care of these what do they call them in the movie? Garlic eaters. Right? And people don't want to choose it, and they don't choose it, and he chooses it every time, and every time he chooses it, it makes me cry. Partly because I've chosen it in lesser ways at certain times, but it partly is that it's so human. It hits me at my core, and it wrecks me every time I watch it. Right? your imagination. Like if I tell you, if I tell you, for example, a story, if I say that, let me say, if I say this, kids can break your heart. Yesterday I was at two different sports games. At the first one I sat with a parent who has a teenage child who is just ripping their hearts out and stomping on it. And at the second one I sat with a young woman whose child is two. Those two women are interacting very differently with the notion that your kids can break your heart. And they talked with very different feeling about it when I talked to them about their children. One of them was just trying to choke back tears in a public gym. And one of them was like, yeah, he screws around sometimes. 
if I say the phrase to you, um, if I say the phrase, you know, driving can be dangerous. Those of you who probably have an immediate strong feeling, something probably happened. Most people, especially younger people, are probably like, eh. But if I tell you a story, right? When I was 16, I got my permit, and there was this other counselor that I wanted to impress. I was working at a kid's camp. Her nickname was Karen the Curvy. You can imagine why maybe I wanted to try to impress her. Every day the kids would go home from the day camp, and uh, two counselors would drive, them, drive into town. One would ride on the bus with the kids, and then they'd both drive back. And um, I cajoled this girl, Karen, into letting me drive the car on the way back. She was well known for being something of a free spirit, and she would drive super fast on the country back roads. And so, of course, to impress her, I would show her the same. So I drove, like, way too fast on all these back roads. We get right near the camp, and it changes to a dirt road. They actually paved it. It might have been my fault. We, get, we pull around the corner, and I'm still going like 35, 40 miles an hour, which is way too fast for a dirt road, even though it was a straightaway. We hit something. The, the car started to fishtail a little, little bit. She reached over, grabbed the steering wheel, trying to be helpful. It didn't turn out to be helpful. We went off the road on her side. We hit this 200-year-old tree at full speed. I couldn't slow us down very much because we're on gravel, right? Hit so hard that my head snapped forward and released about two and a half full ounces of snot intersinus liquids, like onto the steering wheel. It hit the steering wheel so hard, it like splatter affected like a point blank range rifle shot, okay? Just everywhere. I could have killed her. I could have killed me. I humiliated my parents. I humiliated myself. It wasn't her car or my car. I totaled some other girl's car, right? My boss had to decide whether or not to fire me. Listen, teenagers and driving can be dangerous. Okay, did you feel more the second time? If you're a normal human being, you did. Because your imagination can't help but be drawn into a story, right? It's just the nature of being human. Isn't it interesting that the Bible is not a textbook? The Bible is a big, long story. All of the things in the Bible that aren't stories are situated within the story. Even in the book of Acts, where there's these long sermons, the sermons are always situated within a narrative that frames the sermon to tell us what the story means. Well, why would God do that? Well, because he wasn't writing to academics. He was writing to human beings, and human beings are affected by imagination, by story, by being drawn into something, by something like accessing their humanity in ways they don't even fully understand. And all the stories in the Bible are all connected with each other. So the more we understand it, the more we understand its interconnections, the more we're drawn into it. Now, if it's true that we've forgotten how to feel, one of the things that we have to do is say, okay, then what, how, do we, how do we remember how to feel? How do we decide what to do? And there's a couple things I think that we can, we can take from this. One is, is that if you don't feel anything for God's love, if when I say God loves you, it doesn't do anything for you, neither you nor God may be the problem. Don't think there's something wrong with you. There's, there's probably nothing wrong with you. And there's nothing wrong with God. There's a way human beings come to feel things, and you haven't experienced that yet. So the question is, do you want to experience it? Are you interested in experiencing it? Where do you want to go from here? Okay. The second thing is, if you don't feel much at all for immaterial, non-glandular sorts of things, that's not determined. Don't be like, well, look, I'm just not a very spiritual person. I'm a very concrete person. No, 
Secularity, which worships material, focuses our attention on the material, and it accesses our, like, hormonal systems that are pre-programmed biologically to be interested in natural stuff, like food and sex and sports and sloth and all that kinds of stuff. Like, of course you have feelings about that stuff. You can't not have feelings about that stuff. But there's a whole realm of human existence where you actually have to become. You have to become the sort of thing that has feelings for those sorts of things. Immaterial things like morality, meaning, immaterial beings like God, and even the immaterial in other people. If you allow yourself to be so focused on material, every person that you try to love or interact with, you'll treat them instrumentally rather than sacredly. You'll treat them like they function in your life in a certain way. You won't think about their soul and their morality and their meaning and the image of God in them and all the truths wrapped up in who they are. You just won't want to be on your radar screen. You won't feel anything about it. You just feel like you want to get your hands on them or something. And the third is, is that if we can clear up this misunderstanding, you can change your feeling relationship to most things. Not just God. You can change your feeling relationship to God and his love, but you can actually change your feeling relationship to almost anything. Abusive parents, traumatic pasts, hopes for the future, fear of public speaking or spiders. You can— if you realize that our feelings are structural like this, and that they're formed over time, and that they connect with certain experiences, and you can work with that stuff, you can change the way you feel about almost anything. But most of us are too afraid or too lazy to do it. And the first step of honesty is to realize that one of the reasons why we stay the way we are is because changing who we are in our very being so that we will feel different and think very differently is terrifying, especially if one of the reasons you feel a certain way about something is trauma. It's terrifying because you got to go back there. You got to open that thing back up. You got to look it in the face. You got you to deal with what it really means, and it's, it's very ugly. It's very painful. It's very hard. Okay, it's, I, I don't want to minimize it, but it's necessary. And, and God will walk with you through it if you figure out how to walk with him, right? And then it's also just for laziness. We get so focused on the material, and we forget that the most important thing about us is the image of God that we bear. And remember, it says in John 4, God doesn't—God is—God is spirit. He is a spirit, and those who worship him have to do it in spirit truth, meaning the fundamental truth about God that we share as being created in his image is our spiritual existence, our reason, our soulishness, our moral capacity, our capacity to think feelings that dogs don't feel. That's the thing that's so special about us. Don't allow modern life to so focus you on the material to press down your being so that all you can respond to with any happiness, any glee, any joy, any interest, any fear is material crap. Whether that is material, whether that is consumeristic or tribal, we have to become the more we were created to be. And that doesn't happen automatically. Okay. So in a few minutes, how do we form deep affections towards God's love? I, listen, I can't fix this whole thing. I'm just trying to clear up a really big misconception this morning, okay? I'm not going to fix everything about, like, how we emotionally relate to God in 40 minutes one Sunday morning. That's not reasonable. All I'm trying to do is take one misconception and just unlock the door and, like, open it for you and let you be free of it, okay? 
that one of the reasons we don't feel the way we know we're supposed to feel is, because, is not because there's something wrong with God and there may not be something wrong with you. It's just because we forgot how people feel. We don't know how to be human. And we can figure that out. And God can help us. Okay, so let me tell you a story. Now, you gotta go with me on this, okay? You gotta, you gotta imagine this or you're not gonna get the point as deeply as you need to, okay? So you can close your eyes if you want to. If you are not between 22 and 32, please imagine a between 22 and 32-year-old version of yourself who is unmarried, okay? All right. Imagine that you wake up in a park that is in full bloom. It's very beautiful. It is the perfect summer day. Just the right amount of sun hot, just the right amount of breeze cool, okay? You feel completely refreshed. If you're a parent, you're not a parent, and there's no kid to bother you, right? So you get up from under this really beautiful tree. There's no bugs. You're walking down to the middle of the park. You can see like a little duck pond. Somebody's selling hot dogs. Everybody's happy. And while you're walking, you have the strangest realization. You realize you know how to do everything that you've known how to do, but you can't remember anything else. So you know how to buy something with a credit card. You know how to ride a bicycle. You know how to drive a car. You know how to read. You have no memory of ever learning how to do any of those things. You don't know your name. You don't know your age. You don't know who your parents are. You don't know anything about your history. You don't know anything you've ever done. Everything that you do, you do just kind of instinct. You have no idea how you know it. You just have some kind of muscle memory. You just know you can do it. Okay, now let it sink in how that feels. Okay. Now, while you're walking and you've just realized you have no idea who you are, you see a tolerably handsome person of the opposite sex, or whatever sex you're interested in for the purposes of this imagination, coming towards you, looking radiantly happy. You have no idea who they are. Okay? And if you're married now, do not picture your spouse, because you'll cheat in background knowledge that you're not supposed to have. Okay? You have no idea who this person is. They come towards you, put their arms out. They say, there you are. I've been looking everywhere for you. I have loved you since what seems like forever. We have to be together. And then they do whatever appropriate action is necessary. They show you a ring that you like, and they say, please, please marry me. Okay. Now, how do you feel about this proposal? How do you feel about this proposal? Now, for most groups that I've told that story to, more people feel sick to their stomach than excited about the proposal. Now, okay, just for fun, who would say yes? One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, yeah. You, it, usually it's about, it's about 2%. <laughs> when, I did this, when I did this for the Christian school eighth graders— there's this girl who—there's this really bright girl named Jillian, and she raised her hand. She, I think she or maybe one other person were the only people who raised her hand. I was like, Jillian, why would you say yes? She's like, well, I'm thinking of the story. There's clearly something really wrong with me. <laughs> right? This guy seems to really like me, so let's give it a try. <laughs> right? Mm. But, okay, so the, the reason why 
most people feel uncomfortable or ambivalent or strange or sick to their stomach or something not gleeful is because there are three major pieces of information that you don't have. One, you don't know who you are. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you interested in? We don't know, okay? Two, you don't know who the lover is. You might be able to discern a little bit from his excitement or her excitement, but you don't really know anything about them. What they're like, what kind of character they have, will they stay with you? Is this an empty, an empty promise? Is it not? Are they a deeply covenantal person? Are they funny? Do, would you even like them? You have no idea, okay? And third, you have no idea what's transpired between you. And so you have no idea what to hope for to be transpiring between you in the future. What would a marriage to this person be like? You have no idea. You don't know the story. You can't visualize the future with your imagination. You don't know who you are, and you don't know who they are. How could you possibly have a deeply positive feeling? It's impossible. It's not human. Unless you're just an adventurous person. You'd be like, whatever, man. I don't have any other options. Let's do it. Okay, you need counseling. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I tr I'm trusting God, okay? Interestingly, all the things you don't know are all the parts of a good story. The setting, the characters, the conflict, like what's happened, how it's getting resolved, and how did it all resolve? You have no idea of any of that stuff. And see, that's exactly what a relationship with God, or relating with God, or being, or bonding with God would involve. You would have to know what God is really like. You would have to know what you are really like. You would have to know what had already transpired between you, whether you were personally involved in it or not, and you would have to have some conception of what's going to happen. Right? And you see, if these are full of ignorance and misunderstanding, then there could be no appropriate or affection devotion generated by them. And you see, many of us think, well, Nick, I've been a Christian for a while. I know who I am. I know who God is. I know what Jesus has done for me, and I know what we're supposed to be doing. I still don't have a lot of feelings. My answer is, if you don't have intense feelings, or any feelings, or if you have negative feelings, you may not like what I'm going to say next, okay? But consider it. Then you are wrong about those assumptions. There is something about you that is true that you do not know. Or maybe many things. Maybe everything about you you don't know. Or all the important things. It may be that you don't know God at all. You think you know what he's like? You know what he's like. There's so many misconceptions about God, and God is like an infinitely complex being. The idea that it would be difficult for us to get a misunderstanding about God is not difficult. Right? When you look at almost any portion of Scripture— carefully. There are some that really shout it, but Scripture claims really clearly that we don't know ourselves. We think we know ourselves. We don't know ourselves. And because we don't know ourselves, we, we, we are sort of preset to misunderstand God. Because if you don't know yourself, you're constantly grasping for reasons why you're a good enough person or a good person. And so, like, if either you or God is the villain— and you're trying to make it work that you're, you're the hero, what does God have to be in this story? If there's conflict, he's got to be the villain. And then whatever's transpired between you has to be something bad. Something you didn't sign up for or something like that, right? Listen to what it says in Romans 1. Uh, 
I want you to listen particularly for the knowing yourself part of this, right? Starting in verse 18, it says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, O men, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay, so put aside the wrath talk for a second, right? He's saying, in our brokenness and in our wickedness, the, the mental effect of that for us is always that we suppress the truth through the means of what we do wrong. The minute we choose to do something wrong, we set up the whole system so that we have to suppress the truths that speak against anything we want to do. So we naturally and immediately become truth suppressors. The minute we start suppressing the truth, we become dislocated from our own, our own truth, what's true about us, our own being. Right? We lose ourselves. And so we can't know ourselves. And if we can't know ourselves, we've lost a third of everything there is to know that would lead us to accepting God's love powerfully. Right? It goes on, he says— since what might be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Do you notice the emphasis there on God's invisible perfections that are supposed to speak to us are revealed in the material creation? Remember how I said before, the more focus we get idolatrously on the material creation, the more we reject any knowledge of what is invisible what is immaterial, right? So he says, for although they, that's all people, knew God, right, in this deep creational sense, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. What's the result of that? What is the result of the first moment we don't worship God like he deserves? But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the minute we don't acknowledge God for who he is and really know who he really is, and the minute we don't accept his, what he's revealed in creation, we start to suppress the truth. The minute we start to suppress the truth, there is a noetic or a mental effect for us. Our foolish, our minds are, are twisted, and the emotional effect is then our hearts are darkened. We completely lose our relationship with who and what we are. Right? And then he says, although they claim to be wise— they become fools, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. That is, we exchange the immaterial beauty of God for the material idolatry of the things in the world that we want to devote ourselves to on the lowest possible animalistic glandular level. We destroy ourselves. We lose ourselves. We don't know who we are. We exist in a state of being amnesia. That is this first and fundamental point about our own salvation, that God is saying, you think you know yourself, and because you think you know yourself, you think you know something negative about God. It's natural. And then God isn't the way you want him to be, and then you think that whatever has happened between you isn't really that good, and like, it screws everything up. The first and most fundamental point is to say, I don't know who I am. The effect of sin in the flesh in me has twisted my thinking and darkened my heart such that, like it says in Matthew 5 and 6, that the eye of my heart is darkened, and so my whole body is full of darkness rather than the light of life, right? And so what's necessary then is for me to accept what God says about that and to say, wait, God is saying I don't know myself. And the way to come to know myself is to open myself up to what God says about himself. And then for that truth to scandalize me 
and to turn me around and to screw with my mind and to so change my perspective on things and to slowly piece together like a puzzle for me to realize who I really am. That I'm not a not that bad, decently good person, but I am a infinitely valuable, horrifically rebellious creature made in God's image for an incredible destiny that I have no memory of. And so if you, if you have any desire to feel God's love, or what the statement, God loves you, is supposed to do in you, we can't proceed the way we've already proceeded. We can't live in the assumption that we already know this stuff. We can't be too afraid to face the preset traumas or the earlier experiences that have wrongly set our assumptions about God. And we can't be lazy about investigating and opening ourselves with our imagination to what God has said about himself because we know it's going to screw with us. You think faith is a small thing? It's not a small thing. It's a terrifying thing that requires all the bravery in the universe. That's why it's impossible without God. It's why, it's why we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And some of you— if you sense anything stirring in your conscience that this is the right direction, that you could go in this direction, that there's something right about it, that the truth is, the truth is there, and it, and it may not be whatever comes up in here. That may be the Holy Spirit moving in you, working in you, trying to lead you. You should listen to it. That's what I believe. And so, knowing that this is what Jesus says to us, what I want to tell you is, if you don't feel warm when somebody says God loves you, there may be nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with everybody else. <laughs> and there may be nothing wrong with God. It just may be that you never got the owner's manual for how human beings feel and have emotional lives. And it may be that you've had a naive understanding of that. And maybe you need to start a journey towards the kind of feelings that God wants you to have. But you can only start that journey if you'll trust him about yourself, about what he says about you, which is terribly difficult. But it's incredibly freeing. And it is a path that God says that he will lead you through out of love. Out of love. Our psychologist friends tell us that after the age of eight, up until the age of eight, children exist in a semi-imaginative state all the time. As they're like experiencing the world and trying to figure out what it means. And then after about the age of eight, they enter a concrete state of mind for the rest of their lives. Once you're older than about eight, the only way to, to really change your feelings about something besides really change how you think about it is repetition. There's a lot of people who think that there's something sort of inauthentic about repetitions, about rituals. Turns out, if you understand how human beings change, it's the only authentic thing to do. Our lives are nothing but a series of rituals if we live them holistically. And God gave us in the center of everything he gave us to change our hearts towards his love, a ritual to remember his greatest dramatic storied act of his own love, what we call the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. And so if you're a believer, if you believe in Jesus, you should participate in this ritual, even if you don't think you're very good at Christianity or something. 
Okay? It's for you. It's, it's, it's about the story. It's about what God has done. It's about his love. And it's, about, it's a celebration. It's not a test. And if you're not a believer yet, um, this is an act of worshiping King Jesus and what he's done for us. So it'd be, it would be truly inauthentic for you to participate in it. But I hope, based on what we've talked about and what we've sung and what we've prayed about today, that you'll have plenty to think about in the five to seven minutes while we, do, while we do this ritual together. Let's pray. God, as we turn our hearts to this ritual of remembering your love for us, as we try to turn our hearts towards you and try to, with our imagination, sympathetically enter into knowing what you did for all human beings on the cross, open our minds, open our hearts, open our imaginations, open our willingness to feel, open, our, open up our willingness to believe you about who you say you are, even if it scandalizes who we think we are. Help us to start with that and free us from our small-minded addictions to who we think we are. And help us to enjoy the grandeur of the story that you're telling about us. In Jesus' name, amen.